Welcome back to Recovery Machine. I am your co-host, Corey. I'm here with co-host Nathan, as usual. Good evening, Nathan. Good evening. Yes. Yes, it is evening now. How are you tonight? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm good, I guess. Uh, anticipating a successful surgery tomorrow to finally fix my nasal deviated septum situation so I can breathe at night, which will mean hopefully that I can sleep. And that would be terrific because I got to tell you, it is getting to be a bit of a situation. I, uh, having a lot of trouble. I, I can fall asleep, but deep sleep is few and far between. So hopefully this will be the remedy. And, uh, the idea is if we can get my nose opened up, then I'll be able to wear, I'll have more options for CPAP and, uh, keep my oxygenation levels up uh, above 10% would be nice. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyone who knows that knows you well enough to know that that's an issue that you've, uh, that you struggle with, I know is wishing you well on the, on the eve of this procedure. And um, yeah, I'm glad we, we can get an episode in before your, your fast kicks in as well. And yeah, well, it was a surprise because I was, I got a 37 person. There's a you know, 37 people on the wait list here in Kelowna and somebody dropped out and then they just start phoning and whoever picks up first. Yeah. So I was, I was lucky. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but no, not much for notice, but that's fine. I'll take it. Cool. Well, again, congratulations on that. And we'll uh, anxiously await the, the news of your, of your improvement. Yeah. I might look a little funny next time you see me, but that's all right. <laughs> As long as I can breathe. <laughs> yeah. So tonight we wanted to, to, we've been bringing up news stories as they've hit. And we brought up some, some current events with, with uh, the, within the healthcare recovery context within the uh, drug and substance use policy context. But we wanted to focus tonight a little bit on something a little bit different. And it is the stories of healthcare workers and addiction or healthcare workers and um, drug diversion, uh, substance use, whatever it may be that, that hits the news. And over the last 10 years or so, um, these are stories that have come to my attention, even came to my attention before, um, before addiction came into my life and was a, was a part of my life. But I was aware of them and uncomfortable with them then. And I can tell you, I've only become more and more uncomfortable with them now as I've learned more and as I've imagined myself on the side of the, of the nurse or pharmacist or professional who is now um, in the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild that this stuff is allowed to happen. I mean, I, the one specific that we're starting with here, I believe, is a, a case from around... Uh, 2015, 2016, something like that. Yeah. But uh, it's the, it's a good example of the language and the tone that's used. You know, I understand that reporters have to put out material that's supposed to be, they want to engage, they want an emotional response, but this comes off to me as heartless and ingenuine. I mean, it's, it's not a, there's double speak throughout the articles. There's, there's ignorance on a, on such a plain obvious level in, in many, in many ways that it uh, it's shocking. I mean, it's, 
it, it's something that you would expect from a lot longer ago than, than just five or six years. Yeah. And I know we've had like, we're improving, right. We're, we're, we're definitely trending in the right direction and there's a lot of positive stuff going on, but man, when you see articles like this, it, uh, it reminds you of the level of ignorance. That's right. It does. And what, and we will, we'll get into these stories in, in just a moment here. But I think what we want to to share is that these things are are not only harmful to the individual whose story is now being told and made public and and their privacy is is lost there, but it's also potentially harmful to the professional who's maybe in the shadows, maybe tempted to come forward, maybe wants to create a change in their life, and seeing that that this could be made so public and their privacy could be lost. Uh, is certainly going to promote them staying back and staying hidden. Well, yeah, and it's hard to know which of the two is worse. I mean, certainly it would feel horrible uh, to have this kind of exposure. And I mean, I, I don't know how that how an individual would deal with that on top of what you're already dealing with as far as a, a, a drug addiction goes and, and all the legalities and stuff that are involved with going back to work. But it's uh, if you look at this situation and you say, what, what would be best for everybody involved? I think we've said it before when we talked about transparency and a, a level of openness and professionalism that allows for people to come forward without this uh, kind of knee jerk shame type response. Because exactly. if, you're, if you're actually trying to, if you're trying to make a work sa- uh, place safer, not just for the employees, but the everybody, the the people who are going uh, into the hospital, the, anyone who's involved with what's going on there, you want to you you want to be able to come forward and say you've got a problem. And these type of articles really put pressure on people to stay in the darkness, right? Yeah. And the longer you stay in the darkness, it's you increase the chance of hurting somebody. You increase the chance of, of killing yourself. You, you know, it just, it's what we are trying to, that's really what we need to change. And uh, this is material that works against that. It really is. Nathan, what would, what, before we get started, what would your personal reaction would have, what would that have been? Think back to right when, when you came forward and, and went off work, if this story got leaked and, and, you opened up the provincial newspaper and here's, here's your story. What would you have done at that time when you were just on the, on the cusp of crisis? Well, at that time I was pretty broken down and I I basically didn't care. I I wasn't thinking about my image in the community or my, my professional reputation at all. I, I thought that those things would be destroyed. I just knew that I, this, the only way I could, get the ball rolling was to do what I did. And I mean, obviously looking back on the way things went there, there were, you know, I, I, I could have t- taken legal action, you know, the, the way that situation was handled still was not great, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I still own the problem. I believe that I did what I had to do there. So I, I don't have any concerns with that, but I don't, it would be hard to imagine you're so vulnerable in that state and you already feel not just physically like shit and spiritually like shit, 
you're already, you know, you know that you're losing it, right? Mm-hmm. So to have uh, that kind of publicity, I mean, personally, I think I could take it, but it, it would be the fact that I know my parents and my friends are, see- that's what would get me. I think that would, I would probably, <laughs> I would probably be calling a lawyer if, if I saw something like that go on. Yeah, that would most likely be my response, but it would be a slow response in comparison to <laughs> what I would do now. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I think for me, it would have really put me at risk. Like I, I think of how high my anxiety level was within the first two weeks of going off work and without having built up some of the skills about managing my anxiety and managing my mental health, I, I, I think I would have been at high risk for I don't know if I'll say high risk for suicide, but I think that would have that would have crossed my mind. I think the feeling of of that level of exposure and that level of loss of of any kind of privacy, any kind of autonomy would have been really harmful. Well, it's certainly going to drive you deeper into the darkness, right? I mean, yeah. the first thing you're going to do is respond by isolating. Like uh, you know, it would be hard not to. You'd want to hide. You'd want to turn off your phone. You wouldn't want to look at any media. And then what do you do? You're alone with your thoughts. This is eating at you. Like that's that's gasoline for addictive behavior, right? So It is. Yeah. It, it would definitely add to an already grueling uphill battle, I would say at the least. And for Good some time. people, you know, if they were using drugs already to deal with a situation that they found insurmountable, before without uh, without leaning on some kind of a substance then you know i could see that being the thing that 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 tipped them over the edge and i'm sure it's happened before people have been uh, publicly shamed publicly humiliated to the point where they um they just and it could be maybe they didn't even mean to overdose or whatever they just really went crazy that night because they yeah know, exactly yeah there there's a consequence to these things on mm-hmm. Uh, either way. So we'll get into this first example of, of, of a news story that, that can be harmful. And this happens to be a big one. Like I, we said, this goes back to 2016 that these articles were written. Uh, we, we don't want to disclose this individual's name. Her name was disclosed in full in the stories, in addition to her family's name. Given that we take objection to that, the fact that her, her name was, was released, we'll call her K. We'll call her just first initial K. Kay was a, a care aide in the largest hospital in, in Vancouver, a well-known care aide, a well-liked, sounds like a well-respected care aide, who at the time, it wasn't known that she had, uh, known by staff that she had a, a, an issue, a past history with, with drugs and alcohol, though she did, and it from, as the article states, she had um, been through treatment a couple of times, it sounds like, but was ultimately found having overdosed in her in her house and there was evidence that she had been taking uh, large quantities of medications from the the sharp spin at work now because she was a carrier she didn't have access to some of the medication dispensing machines um, so that it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been that she could be falsifying charts and just taking it out of the computer or out of the machine but she would have been taking it probably off the counter from syringes that were already drawn up or out of the sharp spins. So there was evidence of that and evidence of, of urine samples that she was keeping in her house in case she had to, to um, 
provide a urine sample to her employer. It didn't say in the article if she was on a monitoring program or not, but it sounded like it, they did say that she did have to give, they said sort of occasionally urine samples. So to me, that sounds like it was probably a, a monitoring program that she was on there. Now, the details of, of around her death, that's sort of all, all there is to say there was that there was medic, evidence of, of medication and supplies from, from work found around her in, her in her home when she was mm-hmm. found. Where we, well, there's a few areas where, where I take exception. Uh, it, it was some of the language that was used in the article. And I think it's important to highlight a little bit of that language to show how cold and callous and um, demeaning and ridiculing and harmful this language was. And this not only exposes the how, how poorly a healthcare worker who, who's going through addiction is treated, but also just people who use drugs in general, the opinion of the, at least of this writer with the media and this newspaper who then released, released the story and, and the editor who, who read it before it was released. Do you have any of those examples in front of you, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I do. And uh, this is the Vancouver Sun, by the way. So, yep. you know, I think you got to, whatever you're, whatever publication you're, you're putting out there, you got to kind of stand behind the type of language that uh, that's showing up on your pages. Yeah. And it's just, it's the tone, I guess, of it. The terminology used uh, regarding the, the diversion <laughs> is always pilfered or stole ransacked um, hoarded. And it's, it's as if they're insinuating like uh, many of the vials of opiates she stole had patients names and other identifying information as if she had some motive or as if she was actually stealing medications from, from patients, Yeah, which is not, there's no indication that that's what, what happened. This is either it's most likely a misunderstanding by the the person who's writing the article and also putting a little bit of a twist on there to make it look like she was maybe taking drugs right from a patient. That's, yeah, that's kind of what they're trying to do there. And look, this is from my understanding of what's being read here, despite the way it comes off, it looks like we have somebody who was, who had already been to, uh, rehabilitation services twice. So this person was, had a known problem and, you know, was a, was somebody who was allowed to continue to go back to work under whatever circumstances. Um, I think that was one of the questions that her mom, you know, one of the biggest questions her mom had was why, why was it that even after knowing she had a problem, not once, but twice, you let her go back into that area. And then how did she manage to get, so, you know, they, when they found her, she'd OD'd uh, by taking a, she took a medication that was um, a muscle relaxant, I think is what it was. And it uh, mm-hmm. paralyzed her, right? But she had enough access to have a, a healthy habit going in there. And everyone was confused by that or acting confused by that. And this, this, this VC, uh, Vancouver hospital spokesman, Gavin Wilson, this guy, I've seen him a, a few times where he, every time they interview him, he'll say something like this. It's like thefts of narcotics and other drugs are rare. The health authority acknowledges that even with existing protocols, this tragic incident showed that there's still a, a potential for someone to gain access to trace amounts of drugs <sighs> as if 
the place is not awash in accessible drugs. And this is this wasn't some super sleuth evil genius who figured out how to break into a, a Bixis machine or something. She's just taking stuff that's laying around because it's laying around all over the place. Yeah. And yeah, it sounds like uh, the family was stonewalled. Basically, it says family said they had been blocked in their attempts to get answers from the hospital over matters such as how was able to access so many drugs. And they respond with what they always respond with, which is BC law limits the information it can reveal about any employees without the employee's consent. Well, the employee is dead. And the mother, who we're assuming would have power of attorney this time, uh, you know, she's probably the executor of the will. I, I would say has a right to know why her daughter had access to, uh, and, and these things are tough in that I believe there's, there's still an accountability issue here and, mm-hmm. and always will be, and that's fine. What we're, uh, our source of contention here is is with the wording that's being used, obfuscation of the facts by saying things like uh, people taking drugs like this, healthcare professionals taking drugs from work is rare. It's not rare. It's not. We know it's not rare. We know that 10% of everybody working in healthcare right now in North America is on something right now. Okay. Yeah. And it, it just so happens that doctors, uh, anyone who's got access to opiates has a five times higher chance of it being an opiate or a prescription med because that's what's there. Yeah. That's, this is what this is, is somebody who they had some personal problems, it sounds like, and uh, went down a road and probably, you know, they, they tried to, I, I don't know how long she was sent to rehab. I don't know uh, what kind of treatment it was. My Personal views on this are that uh, I think everyone deserves a chance, but there should probably be a limit of some sort. And if is if especially if you're returning to the same site, if you're returning to the same site, I, I really don't think that's a good idea under any circumstances. I just think it's very difficult for people to go through treatment and then go right back into that environment again, even if they have lots of time. Some people can do it. Some people can. It's just evaluating the risk is is worth your time. There's, there should be some thought put into it. But in this case, Corey, you know, she'd had two kicks at the can here, right? Yeah. So this was, this was essentially round three, it sounds like. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many, so many issues. I'm, I couldn't agree more with all of the things that you brought up there. I think an interesting detail of this was that this individual was a care aide. So they're not under a governing body who is putting toward putting forward a consent agreement for that individual to, to sign that would then put some limitations and put some, some control on where they would work, where, what they would go back to and just what that return to work would look like and give and provide some parameters there that could, that could keep them safe. And as much as we've all, those of us who've been through it, it's a very difficult process to go through a consent agreement, but it, is designed to keep us safe. So for a profession that doesn't have a governing body that presumably wouldn't have to sign a a consent agreement to go back, there's a big problem. And then to go back to, I I don't know the exact uh, numbers, but certainly that emergency department isn't within the top three busiest emergency departments in our province, which means like you said, that it would be a wash with, with, narcotics and controlled substances and that they would be absolutely everywhere 
through throughout the course of a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and is you know is that for it's it's one question to ask for the to the individual is this the best choice for you to go back into that setting but also to to the employer and to the union who's supposed to be protecting that employee what are you what are you thinking why roll those dice that just it doesn't make any sense to me no and if you're the uh you know if you're vgh or uh, that health authority, if there is no, like you say, governing body for care aids, then doesn't all the responsibility of whether or not their employees are safe to, you know, safe to be working for one thing, and then have a safe place to work on top of it, uh, aren't those responsibilities then VGH's responsibilities? And if so, I mean, you got to think that maybe because this is in Canada, I don't did the mom uh, attempt uh, litigation because uh, I don't think I mean, so. Yeah. I, and some, I, I don't know how much, uh, what the, what her resources were and, and, and who knows how, um, like she says here, uh, this, she tried to get answers. Family said that they have been blocked in their attempts to get answers from the hospital over matters such as how Kay was able to access so many drugs. BGH says BC law limits, you know, that's the the part where they talk about the consent. And when they go to, well, when the, when the reporter talked to her, I guess she's, she said, when you lose a child, your life is changed forever. Of course, uh, who's been grieving unrelentlessly since she lost her parents, brother, father, daughter. So this woman was probably in so much, uh, under so much grief that it would have been difficult to, to form any sort of plan, I guess. But, you know, and it's always the same old story. Despite all of our safeguards, if there's a determined individual who has legitimate access to narcotics, but disregards professional and ethical standards, they can find a way to circumnavigate the system. Oh, yes, that's a more realistic view of what's going on. I think that's, that's, that's really how they should be looking at this. It's not a solvable problem through just restricting everything to the point where nobody can, can do medicine anymore because it takes too long to get a vial out of the cabinet with the lock and the vault and the patient dies before they get anything, you know, emergency, emergency rooms in acute care settings are busy places where there's Mm -hmm. a lot of dynamic kind of decisions being made. And, and that's sort of the nature of the business. So I think, I think you sort of have to accept a certain level of, there's just going to be a certain level of, of potential there all the time. But maybe it would be better if, like we, how we said before, if it, if it was easier for people to come forward and say they had a problem without facing immediate, uh, well, any kind of backlash like this. Yeah. You know, the, the, the tone of the, of the article is almost painted as a cautionary, cautionary tale in some ways that caution to the public, caution to other healthcare providers that this, that this could happen and that, that this is you know, what did happen, but the risks of, of exposing someone to the point that she was exposed in this story is, well, is shocking her. There's a photo of, of her, of her home. Yeah. A, a, a very clear photo of her home where the reporter uses the term that it was a squalid pigsty and now, underneath. Uh, yeah. It's, it's garbage and drugs. That's the headline, right? 
like healthcare worker died from an overdose in her Surrey home, surrounded by squalor and piles of syringes and drug containers. She pilfered from biohazard waste bins at BGH. Uh, and then they give this person credit for the picture. Like they're a, uh, like anybody deserves credit for that picture. Um, the, the, the shameless tackiness of that phrasing mm-hmm. uh, is, is appalling to me. First of all, this is, we're talking about an, uh, an individual taking, taking drugs from work and who died. What, what right do we even have to see her home? How we does do that not. come into the story? We are, this is painting the picture of this individual that mm-hmm. she was an outlier, I think, and that she was so different from all of her other coworkers. Now, statistically, we know that, that based on those stats, she had coworkers who were also taking drugs yes. or alcoholics or were whatever it was that they were facing. Mm-hmm. But th- there's this attempt to sort of show her as an outlier to the, to the norm. Yeah. They want to make it look like as strange of a situation as possible, like uh, an anomaly. Yeah. So that they can make it look like it's a, uh, just a once in a one in a million weird thing that happened. And I don't know how she could have figured out how to get those drugs home. And which is very much the, um, the tone as well. Yeah. Now I, I wanted to, to add that for now, again, not, not for carriers because they don't have a, a governing body like this, but for nurses, if there is, and we go back to the independent medical examination, if there is a diagnosis attached, even if that diagnosis is an opioid use disorder, that is a medical diagnosis that then protects that individual's identity. So when the, when the college um, or governing body releases their, their, the information from their investigation, as the public is entitled to, because the, these governing bodies are meant to protect the public from practice issues of professionals, if there is a medical diagnosis in place, then, then the person's name and any kind of identifier, like pronouns, are withheld. So we could be, if that was the case in this story, we would be talking about an anonymous individual with no identifiers given. Mm-hmm. But since that opportunity wasn't afforded to her, partly because of her death and partly because of her, her particular profession, everything was allowed to be exposed. I would also say, though, my, the issue that, I, that is glaring to me is that her union, I thought, was supposed to be protecting her that the union's interest is in the protection of the employee from the employer or from whatever it is that they might need some protection and support from. Mm -hmm. So is it written in our, in our contracts or in our agreements with our union that that in our death, they no longer have to protect us or, or support us. I don't think so. So shame on that union. Yeah, definitely a fail there. It's it's interesting, the person who wrote this article, there's a couple of them that I'm looking at here, two different individuals, but they're they're digging for answers and uh, they're talking about how neither the union nor the Health Employers Association of BC collects data or collect data on the incidence of addictions among care workers, nor how often they take leave due to addiction issues. So it just it seems like what you've got is when confidentiality is convenient to keep the veil on on what's really going on 
and prevent useful data, which would give us information about how what is really going on here? Is this a problem that's getting worse? Is it a problem that's getting better? How will we ever know what measures we put in place make an impact if they're never tracking even the most basic data? You know, and that's claiming that that is a, an issue with confidentiality, and then <laughs> showing an individual's, uh, you know, the place where they died and and printing their name. I mean, is doublespeak. Yeah. Shameful, shameful. Mm -hmm. I've got another story here that just it, because it's, these are again, this time we're talking about a nurse. We're not talking about someone who, who, who died, but again, I won't, I won't say the nurse's name, but this nurse's full name was put in this, in this article. This again, goes back to the end of 2016 that the article was written and this nurse was fired from, from their health authority after dispensing quote, an incredible amount of opioid pain medication to people who were, weren't her patients. Uh, this nurse regularly withdrew hydromorphone from her hospital between, and they give they give the dates, uh, according to an audit by by the governing body. And that that opioid was was primarily hydromorphone. They say they say colleagues noticed a suspicious pattern in her behavior, and the authority uh, launched an investigation, and she was fired the next month. Now, again, the, her she did not. Uh, she did not sort of give any kind of um, response to that article or contribute to that article, her side of the story. She lost her job and very likely at the end of that story, lost her license again, without providing any context, without understanding if that nurse did have an opioid use disorder or any kind of medical diagnoses. And maybe it was the absence of that diagnosis that, that prevented her name from being omitted, but her, her name was put forward without any context as to why she gave more medication than her, than her colleagues in all likelihood as, as someone who, who knows that behavior all too well, there may have been a, a, a di uh, opioid use disorder diagnosis there. More than likely. Yeah. I mean, uh, these, first of all, the, the amount of drugs taken always seems to get exaggerated and that, you know, every, every vial that's reported is with these hydromorph cases is always added up as if the vial is full you know, it's, it, there's never any half files, quarter files, right. whatever. By the time you're done, um, it seems like a lot, but people don't understand how much, uh, you know, you can get somebody who's, if they've been using hydromorph daily for two years, it's going to, and they're, who knows what their, their dose is at. Um, you know, it's with opiates, you can push and push and push, and there's really no ceiling. It's some people are have incredible uh, resilience to the amount that they could take before there's respiratory problems even. Yeah. But um, so, I mean, I think like, like I've never seen a case where I've never heard of a case where a nurse is taking hydromorph and selling it, which would be, that would be grounds for being, uh, for getting fired. What I think would be more likely in this case is that the individual probably just didn't fight back and uh, chose to, I've seen it before where people, if they hire a lawyer and the lawyer makes a decision between whether or not the patient has a problem, a medical problem. And if they go with the patient doesn't have a medical problem, then they lose their rights to confidentiality. So their name can be printed and reporters can go nuts with them. I've seen some pretty hilarious stories about uh, a couple cases that I'm quite 
close with where they're they're talking about like they made it seem like this individual was a, a party animal type of thing uh, and yeah. going out and getting street drugs and and involved with LSD parties and all this. It's like, what in the hell are you talking about? Like nothing yeah. they're saying makes sense. But I think that if, if you waive your, you know, medical confidentiality that's associated with that diagnosis, then you can, you get a much more favorable end result as far as your career is concerned. But for some reason, well, it's not libelous. If it's not, it's not, uh, well, it, <laughs> you'd have to go back and prove that that person was exaggerating, whatever. I mean, I'm sure lots of people are, they're not going to chase down every reporter who, no. who prints something ridiculous. Um, but what you're, what you're saying is really good information and it, it may be helpful to anyone who's listening. Should we have a listener who's, who's struggling themselves right now and thinking, what avenue do I take here to get myself out of this? How do I, I want to stop. Do I go to my college? Do I follow through with the independent medical medical examination or do I just follow through and go to a lawyer or, or take that route or just quit? Cause to me, the aspect about privacy is, is kind of a fundamental right that we have. Um, I, I, and I don't want to come across as saying that, that these things are not uh, that protection of the public is not important. I appreciate that protecting the public is an important part that the, that our government governing bodies have and that um, that the public, you know, should should not certainly not have to assume that risk. Although sure. I, th- I think that they are assuming some of that risk without even knowing it, because statistically they are there. Those healthcare professionals are out there. Um, but it's it's good to know. I wish I had have had some of that information beforehand, just to know sort of what what my what my rights were, what risks I was taking about if my story should get released or not. Well, what what would you have done, Corey? Like, if, if I if I could have, uh, you know, if you had access to all the information that you have now, and you were in, you know, back before when you were in that situation where you couldn't, uh, I was in the same place. I couldn't figure my way out of it. I couldn't mm-hmm. rationally seem to formulate a plan that worked effectively, at least not for the long term. There was there did not there was no way to deal with it on my own without, I, I knew at some point I was going to require help. I didn't know anything about what happens when you ask for help through your, you know, your employer and governing body. I certainly would not have went that route <laughs> if I, uh, if I knew that um, I would have, you know, I, I, the first thing I would have and should have done is confided in my family. I should have started there. Yeah. And then I should have uh, gathered information from individuals who, who have been through the process and, uh, and then started learning about, you know, what, what kind of treatments would work for me? How likely is it that I I'll be able to continue in my, in my, you know, capacity as a pharmacist uh is there ways to mitigate uh, my danger the the dangers associated with my profession those types of things which in the end would have the amount of labor and stress and time and horrific experiences uh i would have saved myself a lot of trouble that's yeah. not always the case sometimes people uh are sent to a facility that that really uh 
fits, it, it, it solves a problem that they needed to solve and it sets them on the right path and uh, it can be an okay starting point. But uh, I don't know, what, what, what do you think? You, you know, if you had the information, would it have made a difference? Because it's, it's, it's hard to say, right? Yeah, it is hard to say. I think, I, I honestly don't think I would have done anything differently. I think I was particularly right before I went off work, I was aware that, that I was increasingly unwell and that uh, my behavior was ramping up, that my mental health was really deteriorating and that I was at risk. So I wanted the help. Mm-hmm. I had the, I had the support and, and unconditional love of my family. Um, I wanted whatever kind of medical help could be offered to me. I knew that that was coming, I, you know, and, and I wanted the, the protection and support of, of my union and of the, of the people who could, could sort of help me to navigate it again, as, as this podcast well knows, there are hurdles at every single step. And if you, if you take one route to avoid something else, you will face still face another hurdle and another, Mm -hmm. maybe more than a hurdle, maybe a mountain to climb. Um, But my privacy was really important to me. And um, in hindsight, it was almost early on, almost too important in that I, I, as much as I felt isolated from my colleagues, I didn't have a lot of, of colleagues reaching out to me. I was in contact with, with three colleagues. Um, I probably could have, there were probably other ones that I could have reached out to and had some support from, but I made the decision to kind of sequester myself and, and, and get better. Um, but again, if, if my, you know, in the middle of, of, going through treatment or going through the investigation with my employer or finally signing that consent agreement. Um, and this, my story got released to the media. I would be, I would have been devastated. Now here I am talking on a podcast to me, standing behind my story and owning my story and sharing it on, on, on my terms with my voice is very different than, than it getting unknowingly or uh, without my consent released oh, yeah. to the released to the world. And there are even <clears throat> another, and I won't get too far into the article because it's a little bit, there's a little bit less to it, but there's even an article where locally within, within 30 minutes from where I live here, uh, a story where a very, very similar to, to my own, where a nurse was uh, taken off work for, for opiate use. Um, and all of the details of their consent agreement were, were, released in the, in this local newspaper. So it was as though the journalists just went onto the, onto the website of this nursing governing body and copied and pasted. Um, now, again, that, that is, it is available online. That is public information. Um, but for it to be kind of uh, <laughs> spoken through a, a loudspeaker um, and, and amplified like that, I think is, is unfair and, uh, mm-hmm. and unjust. Yeah. Well, people don't, uh, it's hard for people to understand, I guess. They read an article and it says, oh, look, this nurse is, uh, has been stealing drugs, stealing drugs from work. And it looks like they're using the drugs at work. And 
and now they're caught and that's good. We're going to get this person out of there. And then, Oh, what's this? They, they're, they're sending them to treatment and they're, they're this person's going to get to a chance to work again. What, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who look at that and, and don't understand. And rightfully so. I mean, it, it's not, I think it's something that uh, sh- there should be more consideration there. And I think it should be a, a case by case basis. And I, yep. I still think that there should be maybe not more safeguards, but different safeguards uh, in that there shouldn't be, you know, the pressure to return so soon. There should be, uh, there should be more interest in the person's real mental health overall yes. and, their, and their readiness to return, whether it's to, to an environment that's dangerous or not. And that's, you know, the degree of, of that is something that needs to be dealt with on a more serious level as well. Totally, yeah. Nathan. And to me, it comes back to, to stigma, to the importance of the language that we use. And if we are using language that is harmful, as particularly in that first article that we, we talked about, that is not only language that um, harms the individual, but it perpetuates stigma. And to the person who's reading it, who maybe, um, maybe has some underlying opinions about, about, about drug users, for, for example, mm-hmm. that, that just builds that stigma up even further potentially. And this is why I, yeah. I really think that what we're, what we're facing is not only like to, to, to pan back and look at the bigger picture. I think it's far more accurate to call it the war on drug users than, than just the war on drugs. It is I think, the war on drug users. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and the part about healthcare workers is a part of the war on drug users. Yeah. It's, it's so, so strange, man. I mean, and it, I think if you're going to take the stance where, you know, you, you want to go, uh, you know, the, the old school conservative approach, that person loses their job, loses their license forever. Um, you know, that's, and it's treated like a, a criminal case or whatever. Uh, you're going to have the same problems that we're having with uh, the never ending losing battle against the <laughs> ever uh, more powerful drugs that are getting into this country because they're illegal. It's like the, the less you understand a problem and the more layers you put between that problem and yourself, it doesn't make the problem go away. It no. makes the problem worse. So if you want to have a hospital where, you know, let's say right now the, the number that everyone uses is 10%. So say we got 10% of, of everybody in the hospital is maybe either hungover, still sort of high from smoking weed that morning, um, actively using opiates, whatever it is that we would call in the classic case impaired. That's a whole other subject as to, I, I don't like how that's broadly used as impaired. Mm-hmm. Are they impaired? Mm-hmm. We don't know because we don't have the data, but for this conversation, we'll say they're impaired. Yeah. Now, do you want, do you want to just ignore that problem by making it so that everybody knows that if they reach out for help or become public, it's game over for them? So what are those people going to do? They're going to go hard in the pain. They're going to try to, they're going to make sure their game is tight, you know, for as long as possible instead of, you know, maybe these, you know, maybe I can get some help. You know, you want to leave, you have to leave a a door open for people to get help. Yeah. Um, 
if you're ever if you're ever seriously interested in improving the problem. If you're not and you like the way things are right now, then by all means. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, you know the thing that that, uh, that came to mind for me, and it's a whole other conversation, so we won't we don't have to get too far into it. But uh, this we're talking about Canada, where relatively speaking, it's still quite um, quite gentle compared to our southern (laughs) progressive compared to our southern neighbors oh man it doesn't take a very long google search to see the uh, vast cases of of nurses in the united states who did the exact same thing as all of the nurses in canada who have diverted diverted narcotics for their own personal use and they end up in jail i know i know i was watching a uh uh I was watching a, a news, I don't know what the hell it was, like a fifth estate style show or whatever. And here's this couple standing on the porch. The the woman is crying. She's the nurse. And it was her husband. Her husband turned her into the police because he found and and she's convinced that he did the right thing. And, you know, now they're going to, you know, I'll finally, you know, my license is gone. I spent some time getting, you know, my I'm going to be in jail, but it's the right thing. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, what in the hell is going on down there? I mean, that is yeah. wild. Yeah. Like, so, you know, as much as, as I'm sort of talking about, you know, the, the, the loss of, of privacy and the loss of autonomy by having your story put in the newspaper, or, you know, maybe the, even these stories who, whose names were withheld and, and we're talking about the implication that this might keep, keep a healthcare professional in the shadows down there. If you're, if you're thinking, okay, I can either stay in the shadows and just try to figure out this addictive behavior of mine on my own and do whatever I can to stop, or I'm going to jail. If I get yeah. caught, I mean, that's next level. Imagine the pressure, right? You're, you know, you've got this, you've got this monkey on your back already that you can't shake, but now you know, you're playing for keeps. You're going to have a criminal record. I mean, you think it's embarrassing to go to rehab. How about, you know, they, they remove you in cuffs and take you to jail right from your uh, workplace. I mean, my God. Yeah. And nobody would, uh, it would be, yeah, I, I, I would imagine they would have more people running right to the end of whatever addictive cycle they've got going or just going all the way through and making it right. Yeah. And you could, you know, you could be a, a healthcare professional who, you know, served the public for 20 years and uh, maybe develop some, some post-traumatic stress, or maybe you're uh, whatever's happening in your life and you, and you start diverting some, some opiates at work to manage your, your symptoms. And now you're locked into a, to a sentence for that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just, it's shocking to me. And it's like, if the if it's if you needed more evidence that the prison industrial complex was was uh, steering the ship, holy smokes! Uh, it's so wild. It it's I mean it's twenty twenty two. You know, and you look at some of these systems that are in place, and I just I cannot wrap my mind around how the lack of understanding and progression has it, it just, it keeps hitting this. It's like, there's an invisible wall. It's like a, uh, something is keeping these systems alive and in place. And it's 
past the point of reason. I mean, that all these people involved in these stories we're talking about, they're not stupid people. No. You know, um, they understand that some of the things they're saying, I mean, there's, there's a couple uh, paragraphs in here where the, the individual starts the paragraph saying one thing, and by the time they're finished, they're contradicting themselves. It's just, I guess maybe we're, we're so used to it or something because our, our society is so filled with it. And uh, there's such a lack of integrity. I don't know. I don't know, man. Who knows, really? But uh, it's, it is very interesting. It's, you know, the psychology of it, the, the, the social dynamics of it. How does it, how is it perpetuated? You know, obviously money's involved and treatment centers. They don't want to let anything go because they're making money. And, but man, are we behind on this really badly behind. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And, and um, you know, I, I, I was just thinking that there's another parallel there is that flipping on the, and I don't watch, I don't watch the, the evening news. I'll, I'll, I'll read articles online uh, maybe for a little bit, maybe once a day, but I'm not sitting down to the six o'clock news, but the, the way images are shown there, they're, they will frequently show, particularly when they talk about the toxic drug crisis, they'll show someone being resuscitated. They'll show someone overdosing on the side of the road. And that individual has a story and has a history and has a family. And I guess all I'm pleading for is a little bit of uh, a little bit of sensitivity to the fact that there are individuals behind all of these stories. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I guess I, I hope this isn't the case, but maybe if things continue in the direction that we're, we're, we're going in here, we're either going to kind of evolve and, and make continue to, to see positive change, or we're going to get to a point where so many people are succumbing to drugs or, or just they're, they're relying so heavily on, on substances to get through the day that everybody knows somebody very close to them who has died. You know I mean? We're not that far away from it here in BC. Yeah. So, and I, we've talked about this before and whether or not that's, you know, what it'll take to have that kind of an impact. But I think the scarier the situation is, the more in general, the public wants to look at it. They want to look at it, but they don't want to get close to it. You know what I mean? I do. I do. And if we're going to get close to it, let's be fair, you know, top healthcare CEO, earns a quarter of a million dollars a year and drinks three glasses of wine with dinner every night. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it equally or not do it at all. Yeah, exactly. It's a strange one, (laughs) but (laughs) we're going to keep looking at it. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a part of the whole picture though, to me uh, having the discussion that we just had, it's like looking at the whole puzzle. This is another piece of that puzzle. I think. Absolutely. And, uh, this little corner of the puzzle is very much attached to the swirling epicenter that is spitting out these bizarre symptoms from our culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. You can't, you can't focus on everything. At least I can't, I don't even want to try. Oh my God. No, same. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even this stuff, man, sometimes I, I really have to I find myself, I have to go easy on Twitter. Like I, it's just, oh, man, because a lot of people, you can feel their energy on there and they're yeah. angry, man. They're, yeah. they're so frustrated. 
and it's and they have reason to be frustrated. They're they're just you know they're watching their friends die. They're they're seeing the same nonsense policies being perpetuated endlessly. It's uh yeah, it's hard to it's hard to watch. I try and spruce up my feed with some funny stuff and everything, but it's not yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, and you know that that kind of echo chamber of negativity. I I I go back to the cognitive behavioral therapy idea that. A thought leads to a feeling leads to a behavior. And so Mm -hmm. if you're inundated with all of this information that creates negative thinking and creates just negativity in general, uh, that generates a a negative feeling within our bodies and a stress within our bodies that we then have to try to soothe and cope Mm -hmm. with. So sometimes just turning it off and limiting it is, is the best way. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, Corey, um, I guess we should tell people you are, uh, you have a new, you're heading in a new direction here with your, your career now. And is it okay to say that you've accepted a position? You want to tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. Just accepted a new position within uh, a community, very close to my own, uh, working with a community services organization in a farm, farm setting. So working with, with the community to, uh, generate food and to educate the public, to engage, engage the public, engage people who are either marginalized or at risk. And it's a very, yeah, very kind of cool, innovative program. And so as I step away from the world of healthcare, I feel very fortunate to be moving into something that's so kind of constructive and and so filled with uh, good intentions and good feeling. So. Yeah. I I think uh, it's going to be an awesome opportunity for you. And yeah, they're, I think they're lucky they got you because this is uh, there's a lot of opportunities here and a lot to, I think just with the people you're going to be working with and uh, the contacts you'll make in your community. I think it's going to be great. Looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Likewise. Well, Nathan, thanks for uh, chatting with me tonight. Good luck to you tomorrow as you go under, under the scalpel and mm-hmm. we'll all be, uh, we'll all be cheering for you. All right. Please do. <laughs> Hopefully we'll see you next time. <laughs> thanks. See you soon, everybody. 